Welcome to Animal Matters, Safe's fortnightly podcast with your hosts, Will Appleby and Courtney White. Kia ora, Courtney. How are you? Kia ora, Will. I am good. How are you? I'm doing all right. You've been out of the office for a couple of days um, and you're about to be out of the office for a couple of days more. So there's lots to talk about. Um, but And a lot of stuff we get to talk about that hasn't had a lot of coverage in the media lately because... Queen Elizabeth II passed away, which has really dominated <laughs> the whole conversation for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's absolutely floored me, the, the coverage. I mean, you know, obviously this is a pretty momentous event for a lot of people, um, but just the coverage has been blanketed everything else. And I suppose that's why it's quite nice today to, to sit down with you. As you say, I've been out of the office. I'm a little bit behind on what's been going on. So it's nice to sit down with you, talk about all of these issues for my knowledge, and then also get them into the the public sphere there when um, a lot of a lot of the conversation has been dominated with the Queen. Yeah, I was quite surprised. I didn't realise until yesterday. I was quite surprised to see that like Patrick Gower is in London, Tova O'Brien's in London, all these people were in London. And yeah, it's really, it's, it's really dominated the conversation, which, you know, the Queen was our head of state for the better part of 70 years. It's a long, long time. I can see how it's, you know, been important for a lot of people. Do you know what's funny as well is the fact that the Queen has passed away is obviously not much of a surprise for a lot of people because she was 96 and she was um, not well for a while there. But it's just the, the oddest thing because it's happened and it has seemed to take a lot of people by surprise. And for me, like the weirdest part is the fact that we're, there's a king now. Like, God save the king sounds so strange. Yeah, we'll, we'll be having, we'll have King's birthday weekend next year. <gasps> oh, I don't like it. I don't think I like it. Anyone who was, any lawyer who was a QC is now a KC. No, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. They're now a, king, a king's council instead of a queen's council. <gasps> a KC. Yeah, there's lots of those things. Oh, no. They're all going to have to do their business cards over again. Oh. Our national anthem stays the same because I actually looked into it. I'm pretty sure our, our national anthem never mentioned the Queen. Mm. It's God Defend New Zealand, but it doesn't mention it didn't mention the Queen. But yeah, the the the, the, the UK national anthem has to change, obviously, because it's now God Save the King instead of God Save the Queen. Oh wow. Um but what yeah, about, yeah, there's a few things. What about our money? I've just thought of that. Oh yeah. So there's I, from yeah. Obviously that'll change eventually. Um, but I don't think the Reserve Bank is in any hurry to change it. But there is that thing, right? When you hold the money, hold the banknotes up to the the light, you can see the silhouette of the Queen. Maybe that changes at some point. Yeah, that little watermarky thing. It's a big job though. It'd be that's an expensive Ugh. ordeal to replace all the money. I know. Uh, maybe they'll just like phase it out. They'll just start. You know, at a certain point, new banknotes and new coins will be minted with the King's face, and slowly the old ones will be taken out of Weird. circulation. I, I might know. keep a couple and just sell them and. 20 years time. <laughs> I've got a really like dumb yarn about that. You remember when we got rid of five cent pieces and oh. all of the coins, the, the 10, 20 and 50 cent coins reduced in size. I was a kid at the time. And for some reason, I got it in my head that like one day those five cent pieces are going to be worth something. So I hoarded 
hoarded, hoarded five cent pieces. And I had a whole pencil case full of five cent pieces. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Which I think was possibly illegal. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I think I recall reading somewhere that you weren't allowed to hoard them like that. But there were some particular coins, some particular five cent pieces that are worth something that I didn't, I, I didn't get any of them. Oh, you should put that on Trade Me and see if it goes just as a novelty. Just a huge pencil case filled with it's five gone cent now. pieces. Oh no! When I moved out of home, Mum was like, "What do you want to do with them?" And I was like, "I don't know, take them to the bank." <laughs> so they, they're gone now. <laughs> How gutting if in like a year's time they're like, "Does anybody have any five cent pieces?" Because they're worth an absolute bomb these days. Yeah, it would be one of those situations where you hold on, you'd hold on to them for decades and one day maybe they're worth something. Getting on to the, the issues of the day. Well, there's been a few issues. It's been a bad month for greyhound racing, Courtney. Goodness me. Last month, there was news of two greyhound trainers and they had been banned from greyhound racing for two years. The reason they've been banned is because of the conditions that their dogs were being kept in. So back in June, originally, the Racing Integrity Board visited a property in Taranaki where it found 15 dogs that they described were living in squalor. There was food and waste that hadn't been cleared away. There was excrement through their coats. Basically, the conditions were appalling. So the Racing Integrity Board laid charges and they were banned for two years and fined $2,000. Probably should have been a, a stricter penalty considering the appalling conditions that they were kept in. But um, at least I guess some kind of justice for those dogs. Last week... There was another trainer who was banned for two years uh, because they didn't seek veterinary treatment for one of their dogs that had pressure sores um, that were basic, was basically allowed to get worse and worse. Instead of seeking treatment, this trainer attempted to treat the dog with their own antibiotics. So this was antibiotics that this person had been prescribed by their doctor. Um, and he thought for some reason that he could treat this dog with these antibiotics. Didn't work, essentially. And it was only during a routine audit that the Racing Integrity Board found the dog like this and sought veterinary treatment. Um, and the decision was made that had the, the dog had to be euthanized due to the, the seriousness of the, the injuries it had. Um, and, and the pain it was in. No, I was going to say, I mean, in cases like those, I mean, what do you think, just between you and I and, and whoever's listening, is that enough? I mean, it boggles my mind that we have these things happening in an industry that is still allowed to run in this country and a ban is what people receive for neglect and honestly abuse i would call it abuse is it enough like what's happening there's an unanswered question here for me so both of these cases um they were investigated by the racing integrity board who laid charges the racing integrity board they are responsible for enforcing the rules of racing essentially they're not a real, it's not a real court. It's not a real inspectorate. They are, they're a kind of a quasi judicial body. So they can't lay charges under the Animal Welfare Act, for example. 
they can only lay charges under the rules of racing. Okay, so they see this case, they see these these conditions that these dogs are living in and they take it upon themselves to lay charges under the rules of racing because it is a breach of the rules of racing. Fair enough. Shouldn't they then ought to refer the matter to the SPCA or the Ministry for Primary Industries who do have powers under the Animal Welfare Act to lay charges and investigate? Because you're right. It's from my perspective, it's clear neglect of animals and that is a breach of the Animal Welfare Act. So what's going on here? Is the Racing Integrity Board referring these matters to those agencies responsible? Are those agencies being allowed to, you know, look at the evidence, look at the um, look at the records that the Racing Integrity Board have gathered from their investigation? Or is the Racing Integrity Board kind of protecting these trainers from further charges, further criminal charges under the Animal Welfare Act? I don't know, um, because I agree a two year ban really shouldn't be enough. like these people should not be allowed to they should not be allowed to race greyhounds again at least that's not the end of it there was another case that came out from the racing integrity board just this week um and it's another uh, methamphetamine case where a trainer has been banned from greyhound racing again for two years and seven months so slightly longer after one of their dogs tested positive for methamphetamine now these things are they get a little bit complicated um and there's been a number of cases where dogs have tested positive for methamphetamine. And it's normally because the trainer is a user. They have some form of addiction. And for whatever reason, their their consumption of methamphetamine ha- has led to contamination for a dog. But it is also very difficult to, to ascertain whether a... Um, a dog has been intentionally given methamphetamine. Uh, it's almost impossible to figure that out. But in this case, it sounds like this person um, had been using methamphetamine and that led to detection of the drug in the greyhound. The way I look at it is these people who are racing greyhounds, it's a professional code. They're making money off racing these greyhounds. Therefore, they should be held to you know, a higher standard than the general public, you know. Um, It's unacceptable to be using methamphetamine around any dog, but it's even more so if you're uh, caring for dogs or have dogs in your care that you are then racing and making money from. The really interesting point from this case um, is that in their decision, the Racing Integrity Board said that methamphetamine detections are becoming more common. Further to that... Compared to the two other racing codes, which is harness racing and thoroughbred racing, horse racing in short, detections are more prevalent within the greyhound racing industry, which they say is a really a real cause for concern. Well, it is because, you know, perhaps it is in this case that it was an accidental contamination of the dog. Okay. If we take that as a red, fine. Okay. Ter- terrible, but accidental. My question then is if it is come to light that there's more methamphetamine detections in the greyhound racing industry than any other racing industry in New Zealand, if it was, say, a societal issue that methamphetamine use is is going up, would that not translate across all of the, the racing industries full stop? Because it does seem to point to the the fact that this is 
a problem that is happening in greyhound racing specifically. That's that is an excellent point. You would think so, right? If it's if it's because that's that was the case that Glenda Hughes, the CEO of Greyhound Racing New Zealand, made earlier this year that. Um, from her perspective, she said that because methamphetamine is a societal problem, I think she said, you know, all dogs in New Zealand are at risk of <laughs> methamphetamine contamination, um, which on the face of it at the time, I just thought was a ridiculous statement. But you're right. If that statement were true, then you would expect to see a comparable level of methamphetamine detections in horse racing. But that that's not happening. Methamphetamine is a huge problem in New Zealand, but... Yeah, it kind of comes back to the fact that these are professional codes. Like imagine if it was a chicken farmer, for example, you know, we wouldn't accept a, a chicken farmer or a um, a, a dairy farmer um, using methamphetamine around those kinds of animals. That would be considered, you know, deeply inappropriate. We wouldn't accept people using um, methamphetamine in, in, in any other kind of industry. And we don't. Anyway, so all of this is happening during this period that the racing industry is on notice. So last year, the racing minister at the time, Grant Robertson, announced that he was putting the industry formally on notice following a review. At the end of this year, the government is meant to make a decision. So that lies with the new racing minister, Kieran McInulty. We're still waiting to see what happens, really. Grant Robertson set out three areas that needed improvement, which was data recording, transparency, and animal welfare. At the end of this year, the Racing Integrity Board is meant to report back to the Racing Minister the industry's progress on those three areas. So it's really a wait and see what happens. Um, my hope really is that the that the current Racing Minister, Kira McAnulty, is taking note of these issues. Um, because, yeah, as the Racing Integrity Board have pointed out, methamphetamine detections is becoming more common and they can't. I don't think I don't think you can realistically rely on a defense that methamphetamine is a problem nationwide. You know, the focus really the focus is on greyhound racing. They have been told they need to make improvements um, and it is just simply unacceptable that dogs are testing positive for methamphetamine. Yeah, agreed. I hope that the racing minister is paying attention here because um, it's just piling up. There's just thing after thing after thing happening and it would be great to, to hear that he's keeping this in mind when he does make that decision at the end of the year. Now, live export. There's been some new information that's emerged around live export. This is an issue that oh, it feels like it's been... We've been waiting for so long for a ban, right? So by the end of April next year, live export will be banned, assuming nothing terrible happens between there and then. Um, the legislation is about to go have its third reading in Parliament. So for all intents and purposes, it's happening. It's going to happen next year. But SAFE has managed to gather some information using the Official Information Act, which shows that the reality for cows are in their destination after they've um, endured that voyage from New Zealand is much worse than what we're being led to believe. So it turns out, well... After every voyage, the Ministry for Primary Industries, they publish on their website the mortality rates. And those mortality rates are the cows that have uh, that, that died on the ship during the voyage. But uh, because of changes to some of the rules a couple of years ago, 
the exporter now has to do a post-arrival report 30 days after the cattle arrive in their destination country. Those figures aren't routinely published on MPI's website. So SAFE has had to get this information by using the Official Information Act, which shows that actually more cows are dying after the arrival. So there was one voyage, for example, that left New Plymouth last year on the 24th of September. MPI reported that only three cows died on that ship. But the post-arrival report showed that 11 cows died in quarantine within the first 30 days of arrival. And an additional 20 cows were given a grave prognosis. What does that mean? A grave prognosis means that those cows were unlikely to survive even with medical intervention. So you're looking at actually 34 cows either died or were likely to die after arrival, not three that MPI published on their website. So we're looking in some cases twice as many cows dying or three times as many cows dying. And if you include all of those cows that have a grave prognosis, sometimes as as many as 10 times as many cows are dying after arrival. Now, we don't know what happens to those cows that were given a grave prognosis because we only get a 30-day post-arrival report. Once those 30 days are up, we have no idea what happens to those animals. Absolutely no idea. And the government has kind of, but not really, admitted as such <laughs> that they just don't know. Um, and there's there's really no way of knowing because we have no control over what countries other countries do to their animals, which has always been our biggest problem with live export. It's not so much the journey. It, it could be a five-star cruise liner that these cows are being shipped on, but it's the conditions for these animals once they arrive in their destination country. It's almost always worse than what they, the, the conditions they would be experiencing in Aotearoa. Yeah, and it's weird because an, I know a national MP in speaking about live export by sea um, in the debate in Parliament had claimed that cows are often coming off the vessels in better condition than they boarded here in New Zealand, um, which, I mean, if we didn't look at these these reports that we've had to get through the Official Information Act, I mean, maybe. But then when we look at this information, there's no chance. I mean, this is this is shocking. I could not believe my eyes when I saw these numbers. It's terrible. And, and some of the injuries that were reported in those post-arrival reports, we're talking bacterial disease, pneumonia, rib fracture, stomach rupture, intestinal bleeding, lung adhesion, necrosis. And what's that? What is a lung adhesion? I've never even heard of that. Neither have I. I mean, it sounds bad, doesn't it? It sounds horrific. These are the things that have been listed as causes of death for these animals within those first 30 days um, after arrival. Yeah, and suffocation. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned a, a five-star cruise because that's that's a good way to think about it, I think, because regardless of what the, the conditions are like, which we clearly from these um, lists of causes of death they're not great, but let's say you went on a, a five-star cruise and you got one of these things. You got a bacterial disease. You got your ribs fractured. You suffocated. You got ne- necrosis within thirty days of coming off that ship. I think you would probably still have a case to say that something went on on board that ship if one of these things had happened to you. I don't think you'd let it go and go. Well, you know, I didn't. I didn't die on the ship over. So therefore, you know. 
much of a muchness. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, and even if it didn't occur on the ship and it happened in the destination, I would probably think twice about visiting that destination again in the future. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and, and, And this is the real problem. We've got New Zealand likes to talk about its... When I say New Zealand, I mean government officials and diplomats. They love to talk about New Zealand's high standards of animal welfare. Um, They hold up the Animal Welfare Act as, you know, this amazing progressive piece of legislation. We know on the ground that the situation is far worse. But on balance, we can argue that the standards of animal welfare in Aotearoa are much better than what they are overseas. And that's the real problem all of the countries that we export animals to have lower standards of animal welfare these cattle are sent overseas for quote unquote breeding purposes but it's not like once they're finished breeding they they load them back up on a ship and send them back to new zealand right that's not going to happen they stay in those countries and they're going to be slaughtered and they could be slaughtered by means that could be deemed too cruel to be legal in in aotearoa so it's it, it's a flawed industry from start to finish. Um, that national MP Tim, Tim Vandermolen, he needs to look at some of these reports because he's clearly a little bit misinformed. And it is interesting because you know it does beg that question about why MPI is allowed to publish incomplete data because it is. That's what it is. At the end of the day, it's incomplete data on their website. So it is interesting as to why the agriculture minister is is allowing that. And speaking of that, we've we've got some ships coming in this weekend. We've got the Al Kuwait, which is one of the largest live export ships in the world, um, expected in Timaru this weekend. We've got the Ocean Swagman in Napier. It's just, it boggles your mind when you think about that it's supposed to be slowing down. We're supposed to be um, starting to put those things in place to, to put an end to this. And it's just not, it's just not finishing. People aren't happy about it. There's locals at both of those ports wanting to to be um, protesting. So, yeah, it's it, it boggles my mind. The, the, the two-year phase-out of live export, it was – Damien O'Connor said at the time when he announced that it would be banned, he called it a wind-down period. It's been a wind-up period, really. If I was one of those export companies that was – involved in the live export trade, I'd be going, let's make hay while the sun shines, right? Let's 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 export as many cattle we can during this two-year period because the gates are going to shut at some point. Uh, and it doesn't look like there's been any measures put in place to actually slow down the numbers of cows leaving, leaving the country. The government has just said that you've got up until 31st of April, sorry, 31st of, yeah, 31st of April 2023 when the, the industry will be banned. Go for your life. That's basically what's happening, which is sad. It's it's great that this this industry will be coming to an end, but it has been devastating when you think about the hundreds of thousands of cows that have left our shores during this time. Before we get to our final topic, I do have some good news for today. Thank goodness, because it's been very bleak. Before we get to that, I do want to talk about this 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 paper that was released by the Jane Goodall Institute just within the last couple of weeks. It completely flew under the radar. I completely missed it. It wasn't until this morning that I saw it. We've talked a little bit about pest control on the show, Courtney, and our thoughts around it and and the the way that animals considered pests are uh, treated in Aotearoa. 
So there was this paper that has been published by the Jane Goodall Institute that is very critical of New Zealand's predator-free 2050 program. So this program, it seeks to make, obviously, as the name suggests, it seeks to make New Zealand predator-free by 2050. So this paper that's been released has called the eradication program deeply unethical. I've got an an executive summary here, which I'll read out because I think this is fantastic. It's really great to see um, an organization like the Jane Goodall Institute put a line in the sand on the subject because most people in Aotearoa have this deep hatred for animals. Anyway, so the report says the Predator Free 2050 program aims to eradicate key introduced mammals of New Zealand by 2050 in order to preserve and conserve endangered species. This is mainly done by the aerial spreading of 1080 and other poisons. This eradication program causes a prolonged death agony of intense suffering for millions of animals. Besides target animals such as possums, rats and stoats, poison victims also include native endangered birds, farm animals and companion animals, in particular dogs. The report explains why this approach is unethical, unnecessary and unrealistic. It argues for an immediate ban of these poisons and states that the predator-free 2050 program has a one-sided focus on introduced mammals rather than considering other causes such as habitat destruction and dairy farming, which are greatly impactful. The New Zealand government should invest in alternative, compassionate conservation solutions such as fenced sanctuaries, birth control methods and translocations. It's pretty strong language, isn't it, Courtney? It's extremely strong language, but I think it needs to be because, you know, like we were talking about just before we started recording this podcast, there's some pretty strong language on the other end of the stick as well, on the other side of the fence, I guess you could say, because the demonizing of possums, the rhetoric there is very strong, Will. Like, I, I can't remember the exact wording that you used, but you were telling me about uh, somebody who had called it, I'm going to go with... The evil tripod. What did you call it? The three. <laughs> close, close, but no cigar. So the pred- the predator free twenty fifty program really kind of came from. It was the brainchild of Sir Paul Callahan, who considered the elimination of introduced mammals as crucial to protect. Um, native species in Aotearoa. There was work done by the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. At the time, it was Jan Wright. And it was her, her work was the catalyst for the Predator Free 2050 strategy. And she directed the attention to possums, rats and stoats. And she described those three animals as an evil triumvirate. There we go. I knew it was evil something. Yeah, which is, I never, I didn't realise that this was the language that she used. Because I've talked a lot about the, and we've spoken about this on the show, we've talked about the demonisation that these animals considered pests have. And there is, Kiwis consider it their, you know, their patriotic moral duty to protect native species by killing pests and awful, cruel sorts of ways. And it's no surprise when they get described an evil triumvirate. You know, you think of... You can think of Vladimir Putin as as evil. You know, you can think of all sorts of people as being evil. Possums, rats and stoats, they're not evil, inherently evil, <laughs> right? 
Yeah. They are just they are animals here that are behaving in, in in ways that are that are natural to them, and it's our own bloody fault that they're here. And this 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 paper also points out a really good point that actually these introduced animals are only one piece of the puzzle. Human activity is just as much to blame, including dairy farming, for the the decimation and destruction of native species. Um, so, yeah, I think it's great that um, this paper has been released and it's been released by the Jane Goodall Institute, who, you know, Jane Goodall has a lot of mana. Um, on releasing the report, she actually made a, a statement saying, um, I'll just read out what she said because I thought it was really interesting. For many years, I've been devastated by the cruel methods used to kill predators because of their supposed danger to livestock or human life. Only too often the targeted animals die slow deaths in extreme pain. Moreover, other non-target animals are often killed in the same way. The campaign in New Zealand to exterminate all non-native animals in order to save the country's unique indigenous species from invasive species who were introduced, intentionally or unintentionally, relies on the use of poisons which are known to cause intense suffering and agonising deaths. Again, another powerful statement from someone who holds a lot of mana. You know, Jane Goodall, Dr. Jane Goodall, everyone loves her. She's toured around New Zealand. So I think it's fantastic that her and her institute have 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 put it out there as, as something. Um, and I just wish more people talked about this. Again, this, this paper, it really flew under the radar. I didn't see it mentioned. It hasn't been reported anywhere in the media, yeah. actually. Does that surprise you, though? Not at all. Not in the slightest. That's, that's the problem. I mean, yeah. We, we don't talk about, I mean, we talk about it, you and I, <laughs> ad infinitum, but it's often not spoken about because it is so contentious. The, the propaganda is so blanketed across how we talk about these animals that they're right. The, the Jane Goodall report is right. It's, it's what we do. We demonize possums to the point that a slow, painful death is sort of in the best case worth it and in the worst case a good thing because they are evil they are dirty you know these the way of framing it is just so vicious that it's poisoned a lot of people's minds to these animals to that point and it really is it's surprising how well that's worked Anyway, I did say I have some good news and I'm here for it. The Vegan Society has released a, a report um, which shows that 55% of Australians and New Zealanders want to see more vegan food and drink options added to restaurant menus. I'm definitely in that camp. I want to see more of it. Yeah, me too. I'll put my hand up. So they've, they've, they've pointed out a bit of the context here. So both Australia and New Zealand have significant meat production and consumption rates. Australia is one of the largest consumers of meat. Um, they consume about 110 kilograms per person every year. Oh, wow. New Zealand comes in at around 73.6 kilograms per capita a year. That's obscene. Um, but the survey shows that it's revealed that times are changing with 41.8% claiming to purchase vegan food in supermarkets either every time or often. Um, as an indicator that, that, that this could increase, 18.8% of people surveyed said that they sometimes do, but expressed a desire to make these purchases more frequently. It's good to see that, you know, such carnivorous um, citizens being the, the Australians and, and the New Zealanders are ready to see, you know, more vegan food in their supermarket aisle. Yeah. It's funny as well because 
we've talked about this a little bit before in terms of how New Zealand culture and sort of our identity, and we talk about this in very blanket terms, so we won't say for everybody because, of course, it's not for everybody. But in my experience, a lot of the the way that we frame ourselves is as a nation of meat and cheese lovers because it's what we export and it's sort of how we see ourselves and how we want other people to see us. And that's very reductive, I know, but on a large scale, it is a little bit sort of in our in our blood you know we are dairy farmers and we are sheep farmers and that's what we do and so it's really awesome to see that starting to change because if we go back to our previous conversation I wonder if there's a way that we can start to change those narratives slowly slowly when they are so ingrained in sort of who we are yeah it's 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 been a huge part of our history. I recall reading, and I don't remember the details because it was a while ago, but um, I was reading a bit about Aotearoa's history and post-colonization. And before the advent of the refrigerator, the New Zealand economy um, struggled. It actually wasn't doing that well right up until the point that refrigeration was invented. And then all of a sudden you could ship meat and dairy products all around the world and refrigerated ships. Then things turned around and then, you know, New Zealand's economy post-colonization started to grow. So it's been a big part of that story, um, that, that, that New Zealand ink story, for lack of a, of a better term, for a long time. Hopefully this is a sign of more good things to come, that that narrative is changing. Because I think it's, you know, we ought to challenge that idea that New Zealand is a country um, built by farmers because Tangata Whenua were here long before, you know, European settlers and who bought along agriculture, which has not been great for the environment, you know. That's us for another week. Um, enjoy the long weekend. We have a public holiday on Monday, of course. Good reminder. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, don't come to work on Monday, Courtney. Um, enjoy the holiday. Uh, thank you for listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, Aotearoa's leading animal rights organisation. We release new episodes every fortnight, so make sure you subscribe on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you listen to us on Apple or Spotify, leave a rating because it helps other listeners to find the show. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at safe.org.nz forward slash animal matters so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, Matewa.